for being here. Pull out your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10, tell the person on your right and left, I'm glad you're here today. You, you may have heard me tell this story, but when I was about 15 years old, I was at church camp with my youth group, southwest Missouri. I was playing baseball catch with my youth pastor, We're just tossing the ball back and forth and having casual conversation. And I started telling one of those stories where the only purpose of the story is that you are awesome and you want everyone to know it. You know what kind of story I'm talking about? You have one and uh, you bring it out in conversations when you're first meeting people. Maybe more second meeting with people is, is when you break out that story and you're just waiting until they finish their story so you can drop that bad boy on the table and so I'm telling the story. The only reason of the story is I want him to think that I am great. And I finish my story. He doesn't say anything. He does not affirm my greatness. He does not affirm anything that I was hoping that he would. And he said, you know, Curtis, you were one of my favorite people. You would be my most favorite if you were not so dadgum cocky. <laughs> I'm from Missouri, so dadgum is an appropriate adverb, preposition. After a few minutes, I found a reasonable way to dismiss myself from the game of catch, and I walked away, and I wanted to be so mad at him, but he was right. He was right, and I, I knew it. I, I knew he had caught me. Lots of different people in the room today, lots of different backgrounds, Lots of different stories. The one thing that unites us all is we are prideful, prideful people. And the question I want us to ask today as we analyze our lives, is my desire and your desire for greatness out of sync with Jesus' example? We all want to be great. But is our desire for that greatness out of sync with his example? Mark chapter 10, verse 32, we can see his example. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he d decided and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is his example, an example of sacrifice and of service. It says in verse 32 that they were going up to Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem was the political capital of Israel. And it was also the spiritual capital of Israel. It was the political capital, and you can see on the screen behind me, because it was the, the, the headquarters for the Roman government in Israel. Rome ruled the world at the time. Israel was no different. And they established their Roman rule in the city of Jerusalem. It was also the capital of the national government. Led by the Sanhedrin. A group of wealthy religious leaders that the Romans would use as local governors. The people of Israel also believed that the Messiah, the Christ, would eventually ascend to the throne in Jerusalem. And when that happened, those first two would not be relevant anymore. When the Messiah came and established his government, the Romans would be pushed out of Israel. Any kind of local governance would be now brought underneath 
the reign of the Messiah. But it was the spiritual capital as well. They believe when the Messiah, the Christ, did ascend to the throne in Jerusalem, it would become the center of the kingdom of God. It would become the center of the presence of God, just as uh, the stories of their ancestors in the Old Testament told. And it would be the place, the center for the people of God, moving in and out of Jerusalem to be in God's presence. James and John understood this. This is what they believed. So in their minds, two disciples, when they hear we're going up to Jerusalem, they hear Jesus is going to be king. And because of that, they make a very odd and bold request. So we're going to see today four things. First, like James and John, we desire to be important. This is what it says in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So they believed Jesus is going to Jerusalem to become king. He is on his way to sit on a throne as we go up to Jerusalem. What do kings need? Kings need assistant kings. Kings need regional governors. Kings need prized, valued counselors. And James and John don't just want to be one of these counselors, one of these assistant kings. They want to be the most important kings. They want to be the most important governors. They want to be one on his right hand and one on his left hand. And they play dirty. Because in Matthew chapter 20... It tells this story, and it says that they bring their mom along with them to actually ask Jesus for this request. And what that tells us is what we already know about ourselves, that we will use any means necessary in order to be great. Any means, any avenue, any opening for importance, we will seize it. I was a freshman in high school. Doc Martens were very popular now. They're still selling them today, but they were very, very popular then. They're very big and chunky boots, and those were not really my style, but they came out with a pair of big and chunky sandals, leather sandals, kind of Jesus-styled sandals, and I did like those, and I bought a pair. I started my freshman year of high school, and that's what I wore on the first day, and in those beginning days of school, I was affirmed. Somebody said, hey, I really like those sandals. I think they are cool. And so I did what any normal person would do after that compliment. I wore them every day that school year. You think, well, he's exaggerating for effect. Literally every day. And I'm from Missouri, and it gets very cold there. And I wore them in the winter with socks, jeans, sweater, stocking cap. I would wear a winter coat and my Doc Martin sandals, and you think, well, I'm judging you because you're a weak-willed person, but you have that thing too, that ridiculous thing that you do because somebody said they liked it. I mean, think about most of our habits. Where do most of our habits come from? Most of our habits come from something we did once, and it got affirmed through the affirmation of attention, and we've just kept on doing it. The way we dress, the things that we do, coffee. Coffee is one of our core values here at Bayou City Fellowship. <laughs> I would guess the only reason that you drink coffee today, and I drink coffee, is because that first time or second time, sometime, we drank it, and someone affirmed us in it. They said that it made us more adult. 
It helped us fit in. There was affirmation there, and we kept doing it. Because if you are not a coffee drinker today, and you've never had it, you cannot walk out there to what I think is some of the best church coffee on planet Earth. You cannot walk out there and convince me that it tastes good. It doesn't. Even when you dump all that sugar and caramel in there, it still doesn't really taste good. But somebody affirmed it along the way, and we kept doing it, and now we just have to have it. Most of our habits, most of the things that we do, we do because it was affirmed through someone's attention and we seized on it. Why? Because in us is a desire, like James and John, to be important. And we have this core fear of going unnoticed. A core fear of being overlooked. And when we feel like that's happening... We will do anything to fix it. Number two, like James and John, we want an unconditional yes. It says in verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I mean, you talk about some boldness. Jesus, we want you to say yes now, and we will tell you what we're asking for later. They want that guaranteed yes just like we do. We want guaranteed yeses from God. That's why most of us in our prayers will bring up all the good things that we do. God, I really want this. I need this. And when it looks like that's in jeopardy, we slap our resume down on the table. I've been helping the poor, I've been serving, I've been faithful, I've been having people in our home, I've been generous, I've been trying to read my Bible every day, I've been praying. The only reason that we do that is because we want to put God in our debt. We want to put Him in a position where He has to say yes to us. Because in us is the same thing that was in James and John. We want that unconditional yes. There are so many things in our lives that we want that we're not sure God will give us. And so if we can put him in a place where he will agree to it no matter what, that's a good thing for us. We want that unconditional yes. Number three, like James and John, we don't understand what we ask. Verse 38. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus says, are you able to drink my cup? What he's saying, are you able to share in my suffering? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to experience? Meaning, are you willing to be, and are you going to be immersed in my suffering? And they say, we are able. Jesus says, you are able and you will. And that's what happens. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 It says, about that time, Herod, the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James was right. He did drink Jesus' cup 
And he was baptized with Jesus' baptism. His brother John as well, Acts chapter 4, verse 3. And they arrested them, that was Peter and John, and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Arrested, arrested again later on in his life. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. That was a prison island on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Jesus said, you are going to experience this cup and you will be baptized with my baptism. And it happened. They suffered. James lost his life. But in Mark chapter 10, they didn't understand what they were asking. They didn't understand what they were asking because they didn't understand what it meant to be a disciple. They had spent these three years with Jesus, but they didn't understand what it meant to follow Jesus. Because just in the the, the section before, what did Jesus say? I'm going up to Jerusalem to suffer. I'm going up to Jerusalem to be given over. I'm going up to Jerusalem to be crucified. And what did they hear? We're going up to Jerusalem to get promoted. It's so subtle how we'll take Jesus' teaching and we'll just twist it towards our own advantage. We just hear the things that we want to hear. Mark uh, says that James and John are confused about what it means to be a disciple. And when you and I are confused about what it means to be a disciple, it means our priorities will be confused. And when our priorities are confused, we're going to ask for things that are irrelevant to the way of Jesus. That's the, the saddest part about James and John's request. Is it shows just how out of touch they are with the heart and the way of Jesus. He's on his way to suffer, and all they're worried about is what role they're going to have in the glory of Jesus' kingship. I wonder if someone listened to our requests, would they say, no, they're totally in sync with the heart of Christ? Or would they say about us what we're saying about James and John today? They were out of touch. They were out of touch with what it meant to be a follower. They were out of touch with what it meant to lay your life down for the sake of someone else. Number four, we are like James and John because we thirst, our thirst for importance fractures our relationships. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, that's the ten other disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. The other disciples are mad. Why? Because they wanted to sit on the right and the left too. They wanted a chance at that. And maybe there had been some kind of gentleman's agreement that we all want this together. So none of us are going to make the move to actually make it happen. And they stepped out too soon. For some reason, the ten are mad at James and John. But look what they did to Jesus. Look at what their request did to Jesus. He's saying that he's going to suffer that he's going to drink a cup of suffering, that he's going to be baptized with suffering. And what do they do? They, they minimize it. They minimize it in order to get the thing that they want. In our pursuit of importance, it causes us to gloss over the suffering of others. You can't be totally empathetic with somebody when pride is at an all-time high. Because it always has to be about you. Our pride is the cap on our capacity to be an excellent friend, spouse, parent, or child. Your pride and my pride is getting in the way of being the kind of friend we should be, child we should be, 
parent we should be, coworker we should be, boss we should be, because pride makes it about us every time. When someone else is suffering, we want them to move on quickly. But when we are suffering, we want them to move into our suffering. When it's their suffering, move on, get over it. When it's ours, no, come in, move in with me. And then when people don't move into our suffering, we get mad at them and we don't understand. It's because in our desire to be important, we just gloss over other people's suffering. Because our thirst for importance fractures our relationships just like it did with James and John. But what does Jesus teach? Verse 42, first, don't lord over people. We're like James and John, but what is Jesus telling us? Same thing he told them. Verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. He says, don't lord over people like the Romans. How do we lord over people? First, we lord over them by attempting to control them. That's what the Romans would do. They would try to control every possible outcome it's like when you want to take your kids to eat you already know where you want to eat but you want them to be on board with where you want to eat so what do you do you say hey where do you guys want to go eat tonight and they'll throw out some recommendations and you'll gently steer them away from those recommendations towards your recommendation no, we can't do that because we had that kind of food last night. No, we can't do that because maybe that's not the budget for tonight. No, we can't do that. And magically, they end up agreeing to what you wanted to do in the first place. It's funny when it's our children, maybe appropriate. Not as funny when you do that with a friend. Where you have an outcome that you want everyone in your life to get on board with. And so you control them with the words that you use and the words that you withhold to get them to do the thing that you want them to do. Using your influence to get your way is control. We also try to lord over people by attempting to overpower them back into their place. You do that with your kids too sometimes when you're taking them to eat. This is where we're going. And they say, why? I don't want to go there. And you say, well, how much money are you bringing to the table tonight? (laughs) No, zero. Well, I guess we're going to go where I want to go. (laughs) Again, funny and appropriate when it's your children. Not as appropriate when it's your parents that you push back into their place or your adult children or your friends, your coworkers, people who work for you. You overpower them. Because of your position, it's lording over. A question that will help guard us, though. Would my integrity stand up if people knew the whole truth? If people knew everything in this decision that you made, if people knew everything, if they knew every conversation that you had, if they heard every one-on-one with this person, if they knew all the facts... Would your integrity stand up or would it be brought down? There are some moments when your integrity would look good. Because they would know, oh, I didn't understand why they made that decision. But now I saw 12 people asking for this and saying that. And I see all the facts that I didn't have. And they would say, man, what, what kind of humility 
does this person have that they didn't share all that with us? And they just made a tough decision. I respect them more. But then I'm guessing there's lots of instances where if everybody knew the whole truth, they would respect us less because they would hear us saying this to this person and saying this to them and being told this information and withholding it in this case. If people knew the whole truth and nothing but the truth, would your integrity stand? Because you can't control people when all the truth is out on the table. If you say to your kids when you get in the car, here's the the deal, guys. I really, really, really want to go to this place. You can't then trick them because they know this is where dad wants to end up. If people knew the whole truth, we couldn't lord over people. Number two, Jesus teaches us to redirect our desire to be great into service. It says in verse 43, It shall not be so among you, but whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love that Jesus does not squash our desire to be great. If you aspire to be great in your work, he doesn't squash that today. If if you desire to be an essential part of your company or your family or your neighborhood watch group or wherever it is, he doesn't squash that today. He says, if you desire to be great, just be great in the right kingdom. Don't try to be great in the kingdom of this world. Be great in the kingdom of God. So take your desire for importance and be important in the kingdom of God. And how do you be important in the kingdom of God? You serve. You serve. And he gives himself as an example. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He uses the word servant. He uses the word slave. Instead of ascending to the top because of our desire to be great, Jesus says, ascend to the bottom. Ascend to the bottom. You may not be great in this world, but you will be great in the kingdom of God. So James and John, they don't get to sit on the right or the left. Their request is denied. The next time in the Gospel of Mark that we see that phrase, right and left, is in Mark chapter 15, when it says, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, and one on his left. See, the right and left of Jesus is not about greatness. It's about grace. It wasn't the two best positioned disciples who ended up on his right and ended up on his left. It was criminals. It was sinners. Sinners just like sitting in this room. So there's hope for us today. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. You can be as close to Jesus as anyone who's done it all right. And for those of us who are trying to be great because we're earners, trying to put ourselves in the best possible position, Scripture reminds us it's grace. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. Jesus came to serve. He came to serve because 
God created the world perfect and whole. He came to serve because Adam and Eve made a couple of bad decisions and we've been repeating those bad decisions ever since. Breaking the world and breaking our connection to God. But Jesus came to serve because God loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Jesus came to serve by dying on the cross, taking all of that brokenness that we had contributed onto his shoulders and his body was broken and his blood was shed. Three days later, he took his life back up again because he said, no one can take my life from me. I willingly lay it down and I, on my own, pick it back up. And that's what happened in the garden tomb three days later. He appeared to many witnesses. Then he ascended into heaven and one day he will return. And Jesus said when he returns, there's going to be a right and the left again. When he returns, he's going to place the sheep on the right and the goats, those who don't believe, on the left. So you and I are considering right and left today. And the best place to start our consideration is when he returns. Are you going to be on the right as a sheep, as a follower of Christ? Or are you going to be on the left, those who will end up separated from him? James and John believed that if they just hung around Jesus long enough, they would eventually get promoted. Lots of church people believe that. If I just hang around long enough, when I die, when this life is over, I'm going to get promoted. I'm going to get promoted to heaven. But Jesus says it's, it's those who believe that don't perish. So the right and left, when Jesus returns, it's not about what you've done. Have you believed? Have you believed? You don't have to earn anything today. Jesus has already made all that possible. So once you bow your heads and close your eyes with me, I'm going to pray. But I do want to give anyone the opportunity to today to say, you know, I'm not sure that I have believed in Christ in the way that would cause me to be on the right when he returns. To be united with those who follow and I and believe. And so if today you, you want to make that confession to Jesus, that just in your own heart and mind, pray this prayer of faith. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you came to serve me through your perfect life, through your sacrificial death, and through your powerful resurrection. I count myself among those who believe today. I know it's all by grace and not by earning. Scripture says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you prayed with me today, you can have assurance that you're on the right side of Jesus when he returns. 
God, we pray that you would help us to practice greatness in the kingdom of God by serving. Help us to quit striving for importance. Set us free from that by the power of your name. Pray these things in the greatest name. Amen. And amen. Watch your stands here if you